Our sermon passage this morning comes from Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took the ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Pray with me as we come before God's word this morning. Gracious, merciful Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word which promises to never return void. We pray that you would work in us by the power of your spirit this morning. Speak to us, your people. Encourage us, strengthen us, exhort us that we would be a holy people as you are holy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In this morning's passage, as we've been walking through the book of Ruth, we kind of have the final big turning point this morning. Right? Last week, we learned the, the devastating news that there was someone else other than Boaz that could redeem Ruth, someone else that could marry her, someone that could stand in the way of Boaz being able to marry her. And now, as they say, we get the rest of the story, or at least the beginning of the rest of the story. And, you know, the last thing that was said in chapter 3 here uh, was that Boaz would settle the matter today. Right? We learn that Boaz is going to figure out what's next today. And now we see him actually settling the matter. And as we consider this opening part of, of the scene in chapter 4, I think a helpful lens to help us view what's happening here is actually found in Psalm 1. Uh, what we're seeing, I think, in this first bit between Boaz and the, and the no-named Redeemer is actually Psalm 1 in narrative form. You know, Psalm 1, if you're unfamiliar, it's a wisdom psalm. And like all wisdom literature in the ancient world, it always sets out two paths, right? The, the, the way that leads to life, right? The, the, and the path that leads to destruction, Right, the, the one who is like a tree planted by streams of water, meditating on God's law day and night, right, strong, rooted, lasting. And the other, the other way is the, the, the one who doesn't meditate on God's word, but rather meditates on the counsel of the wicked. And in doing so, it's like chaff, like the wind drives away and, and they're forgotten. And I think that one thing that Psalm 1 and this passage teach us and try to implore us to believe so God's laws lead to life. God's laws lead to life. 
And more than that, they require wisdom to apply to our lives. And the, <clears throat> and the thing that actually keeps us from doing this is that we maybe don't quite believe that God's laws really do lead to life. Typically, when we hear about laws, what do we, what do we think? We think restrictions, right? We, they feel district, restrictive. It's a, it's a set of no's. Don't do this. Don't do that. It's negative, you know? And this is why, you know, most children, at some point in their lives, you can correct me later, children, if I'm wrong in this, but you think, you know, when I'm an adult, I'm going to eat all the candy I want. No one can stop me. Because we think that being able to do whatever you want is the thing that brings life. Being able to do whatever you want is the thing that actually is freedom. But what happens when, that, when, you, when, when you're able to do whatever you want? What happens? Does it lead to life? No, it leads to destruction. You know, Ruth comes to us. Remember, in the time of Judges, and the motto of the book of Judges was there was no king in the land. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it nearly destroyed the nation of Israel. And so one of the things that this is pointing out is true freedom, right? True life is actually found in restraint. It's found in law because his law is life-giving. The law of God brings life. And to apply God's laws to our lives, we actually need wisdom. It's not just head knowledge that is required, but being able to practice it. It isn't just... uh, ascending to something in your brain, but you actually need to do these things. This is why one theologian, Cornelius Plantiga, defines wisdom as this, knowledge of God and a knack for living in his world. Right? The way of the wise is the way that knows God's laws and walks according to them. Versus the way of the fool is one that chases life through vain pursuits and ends up unrooted and tossed about. Both of these are after life, right? Both ways are seeking life, but only one way actually leads there. So the question before us this morning is this. How do God's laws bring life? How, how does this actually happen? How do we, and how do we follow them so that we too can find life? I think there's two ways that the passage answers this question this morning. The first is this. That God's law brings life by exposing our idols. God's law brings life by exposing our idols. And we see this happening as the no-name man is exposed. To set the scene, let's look back here at verse 1 and 2. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate. He sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten of the men of the elders and said, sit down here. So they sat down. You know, the scene is getting set up here, you know, and it seems like a bizarre thing. We don't really have gates of the city that we go sit at and do business at. But this is actually where all the business was done uh, by the, the people. So he, he goes to the city gates. He, he, Boaz went there knowing that, hey, this guy is going to be there. And so he finds him. He says, hey, sit down here. It's a fun little scene. He's kind of setting up actually a court Uh, and he's acting according to the laws of the land at this time in front of witnesses and so once this session this court session is gathered he says this in verse three to four then he said to the redeemer naomi who has come back from the country of moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative elimelech so i thought i would tell you of it and say bide in the presence of those sitting here 
and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And so, you know, Boaz is forcing the issue. He's, he's not doing like a back alleyway negotiation here. He's doing it in the presence of other people. He's uh, being very wise in this. And one could read this first account and think, um, you know, at least when I did it, well, what's this, what's this land that he's talking about? Is this is a brand new to the story? We, we haven't talked about land at all. Is he lying about this? Where is this coming from? Nowhere else is it mentioned in Ruth. And what's happening in this scene is this. Naomi and Ruth, right, they're, they're widows. They need money to live, to survive. And they have land that belongs to their family. And Naomi is needing to sell this land. And the way the law worked in this time to bring about life was that whoever the kinsman redeemer was, they would come to claim the widow, right, to redeem her. But they'd also redeem and claim whatever they owned, including their land. However, there was a catch to the land ownership thing. Their, their, their job was actually to give an heir to the, to the widow so that their heir could one day have that land for themselves. So they would buy the land, they would spend money on the land and prepare it for a future heir to take, take it back. So this is actually a really profound way that God showed provision for the widow, for the needy, uh, through his laws. And the Redeemer would come and claim the land and care for it, but not for himself, but to pass it on to a future heir. And this man says, yeah, I'll do that. And at this point, we might think, well, he must be an honorable man if he's willing to do this. What are you talking about exposing idols, Craig? Well, the story continues in verse 5 to 6. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. And the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. I cannot redeem it. So he quickly backs out. Why does he back away from the redeemer role? Because right when he first said yes, he thought he was going to get an old widow who was beyond the, the years of bearing children, and so that when she died, he would get more land. And so he would just be able to increase his holdings, increase his wealth. But now, now that he learns that there's Ruth a part of the deal, Ruth the Moabite, no less, he, he doesn't want any part of this. Because now he's going to have responsibility. Now he's going to spend money on land only to give it back to her and her heir. So he's thinking, why would I want to do that? Especially when you've already told me that there's a way out. So I'm going to take that way out. So he says, yeah, I'm going to have to go ahead and say no to this. Uh, but you go ahead. right? You spend your money on the, the Moabite uh, widow. I'll continue to grow my own wealth and my own name my own way. So rather than submitting to the spirit of God's law... He finds the loophole, right? Instead of doing his duty as a kinsman redeemer, he, he lets it go because he doesn't want his holdings bothered by this inconvenience. He doesn't want this to impair future generations. Uh, and this is the great irony of the story. Who's the only character that speaks in Ruth that is unnamed? This man, the second redeemer, uh, the second redeemer. You know, we've learned in Ruth how important names are, how much they speak to, to people's characters. Uh, well, the lack, of name, the lack of a name here speaks just as loudly, and it's just as important. And in trying to protect his name, trying to protect his inheritance, he loses it. As he's confronted with God's life-giving laws, which are meant to protect the helpless and vulnerable, what does he do? He says, no. Why? Because of his greed. 
He didn't want to be restricted by the law because it would have demanded he serve someone other than himself. We don't want that. And since he had a loophole, since he had a way out, he takes it. He didn't care about the spirit of the law or the kind of people the law is trying to form and create. He only cared about the letter of the law, exploiting the loopholes he could find. God's law exposes his idols, his vanity, exposes his love of self. But in trying to save himself and trying to build his own wealth and self-protect, he's actually written out of the pages of Scripture. He he could have been the great-grandfather to King David. You know, he could have had the pillar, a pillar in Solomon's temple named after him, like Boaz does. He could have been remembered among the lineage of Christ himself. And yet we don't know his name. The nameless one. God's law exposes us. It exposes our idols. It exposes our love of self, our self-serving ways, our self-protection, our self-serving love. It makes us like chaff, like the wind drives away. And as we consider the no-name man, the way of the fool, for one, we're meant to say, I don't want to be like that person. Like those, whenever there's two paths, it's pretty obvious which path you want, the one that leads to life, not death. Easy choice, right? But it's meant to ex- expose us because we are not that person that chooses life. We are the no-name man, right? And we're meant to see our own temptation, to follow paths that lead to destruction, And we see our own selfishness, our own greed, our own self-preservation. And it's trying to turn us away from that. And like God's law, you know, greed, what is the promise of greed? Life, isn't it? Self-protection promises life and salvation. It seems good. It's the safe way. It makes sense to the world, but it doesn't actually work. Self-preservation ends in our destruction. And not just our destruction, but the destruction of those around us. It's a communal event. And so the question is, so what does it mean to act wisely then? How do we know if our actions are right in applying God's knowledge? And what we find is that true wisdom, true application of knowledge of God is found in selfless acts. It's always done to bring life to the other. And so as we apply God's laws, we discern wisdom. The question we ask ourselves is, do your actions serve others or just yourself? Because the wisdom of God is always selfless. And this is actually what we see in the second way that God's law leads us to life. And it's this, that God's law brings life through selfless love. God's laws bring life through selfless love. As the wise apply God's law to their lives, they bring about life wherever they find themselves. And there's a couple aspects to selfless love that we see here. Uh, in the story of Boaz, and it, the first is this, it's the freedom of restraint. The freedom of restraint. Which, you know, you put these two words together and they seem like opposites, right? They, but when viewed rightly, they're a beautiful pairing. And so the question is, what is Boaz restrained by in this passage? Well, the law, right? He's restrained, he restrains himself by the law. He follows it. He gathers the witnesses. He, he gathers a known name and he does what he's supposed to do. Why? Because it's what the law requires of him. For one, and for two, it's because he actually believes it's good. He actually trusts it. How is that freedom? You know, we often only think of freedom in personal terms. I have my own personal freedoms. But the truth is, nobody's actually free. I mean, you know this, right? 
You are not actually free. You, you, no one can do whatever they want. No one really wants a place where everyone can do what they want in their own eyes. Because you end up with judges, which is mayhem. And eventually, even the people realize this. This is why by the end of judges, what do they do? But they ask for a king. They learn that true freedom actually comes with restraint. And this is the goal of God's law, is to create a holy people. It's life itself. This is why his restraints are actually never harsh. They're never too much because they always lead to life. I mean, they're only heavy on us when we actually resist them, right? It's like an animal pulling away from a training collar, right? When you go the way of the master, there is no pain. But when you pull away, you experience much pain. God's laws lead to life. And we need to learn to apply them. And when we do what we find is that it's always selfless. It always serves the other. And here we find it leads to the redemption of, of not Boaz, but Naomi and Ruth. Right? In any other society of the day, they would have been left to their own demise. But in the place where Yahweh rules, in the place where his laws rule, he demands his people act according to his wisdom. Which sounds counterintuitive because it says if you want to keep your life, you have to give up your life. If you want to be remembered, you have to be willing to be forgotten. If you want to be served, you have to serve yourself. Boaz's goal here was not to make a name for himself. He was willing to have this man marry Ruth. Actually, he was okay with her marrying another man. He obviously wanted to marry Ruth. He wanted this role. But because he trusted God's restraints, because he trusted in them, and not just in the letter of law, but the spirit of the law, Right, like Boaz is a man who went above and beyond letting Ruth glean above and beyond what any law would demand of him. He was willing to be the kinsman redeemer even though he actually was far enough removed from the family line that, that, that based on the law he didn't actually have to be the redeemer. But he found the freedom of restraints in God's law and he saw and has experienced and tasted and see that it actually leads to life, to joy, to happiness. So much so that although he had been waiting his whole life, he is old man and he is no wife. He was willing to have this other man take the role that he wanted. How could he do this? Because he had seen it himself. He has tasted the life that comes from following God's law because true wisdom leads to selfless love. But as we read this story, you might think, it sure seems like Boaz might be manipulating this man. How, how is it that he's working within God's restraints when it seems like he's like pulling the old trick uh, on him? And, you know, I guess for one simple reason that we know that this is true. Because he acted in service of others, not himself. Right? He, he likely knew this no-name redeemer. He likely knew what motivated him. Uh, and uh, in his wisdom, he kind of sets him up, doesn't he? He doesn't lie about anything. He just chooses to present the information in a particular way to get a particular result. Maybe he was a, a lawyer of sorts. Um, uh, but in wisdom, he sets him up. So what does he do? He kind of shows him the prize, right? Here's the land that you, you could have, more money, right? More land. He got him focused on his greed, on his self-serving attitude. And then he says, oh, also, you need Ruth. Uh, you, you're going to have to redeem Ruth, too, and, and give her an heir. So why does he set it up like this? Because he, he wants this man to understand the true cost to being a redeemer to Ruth and Naomi. He doesn't want him doing this half-heartedly. He is shrewd in acting in accordance with God's law, but he does it for the sake of life. He understands what's intended by God's law. He is wise. God's laws bring life through selfless acts. 
Because true freedom in life isn't found in doing whatever you want. It's found in the peace and wisdom that comes from being conformed to the image of Christ. This is the way that is rooted like a tree by streams of water, renewed, refreshed, holding strong in the deepest of storms. And this is the way that we are actually called to. Our challenge is to actually live this out, though, isn't it? Because if we're honest, we can't actually walk this way. Self-giving love goes against every instinct that we have. Being born in our sin, being born with proclivities to go the way of the fool, prone to believe that the way of life is self-preservation at all costs, prone to defend, prone to trust kind of our base animal instincts. So how do we fight against this? If we're prone to go the way of the fool, if that's, that's what we wake up in the morning thinking about, how do we fight against this? How do we act the way of the wise? How do we live in the world the way God has actually called us to? There's actually only one way to do this. And it's not through our own strength. It's not through our own pathway. But it's through the one who is called the wisdom of God by Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, which is Christ. Wisdom in the flesh. God's law incarnate made flesh stronger than Boaz, greater than David. The one who not only walked the way of the righteous, but only walked the way of the righteous. Never seeking counsel among the wicked. Never acting out of his own self-preservation, but the opposite. Because what does he do? He steps out of the glories of heaven to walk on this earth to be our kinsman redeemer. To claim you, to claim me, to claim our debts, and to do what? To give us an inheritance. Colossians 1 tells us he's, he's holding our inheritance for us, keeping it until the day of Christ. Christ, the ultimate self-giving lover. And this is the great irony of God's kingdom. The one who seeks his life actually loses it. But the one who gives up his life will gain it. This is what Christ did. Right? He didn't win by warring against Rome and the rulers of those days. But he was most exalted in his humiliation when he was raised up on the cross. When it looked like he was at his weakest, defeated, dead was actually when he was at his most victorious. Disarming the rules and powers of the day, death and Satan, taking all the covenant curses upon himself Stripping the enemy bare of its weapons. Now all those who put their faith and hope in Christ are invited into his sufferings. But as we share in his sufferings, what do we find? We find life. In his death, we now find life. We find the way of the wise. And the only way we can now walk according to these ways is in him. The one who has done this work perfectly. And as his spirit now lives inside all who believe in him... Now you too actually have the wisdom of God living inside of you. Actually, his wisdom is inside of you by the power of his spirit, helping you to rightly apply God's laws. And we nurture this spirit as we meditate on God's word, as we commit ourselves to God's community, to the rhythms of word, sacrament, and prayer. And when we do, what we begin to do is mimic the self-giving love of Christ. We learn to stop living for ourselves. Little by little, we start loving like he loved, learning that this is actually the way that gives, leads to life. Little by little, we start living for the good of the other, not just for ourselves. Not to make our inheritance greater, but because we can't. Right? We mimic these things because our inheritance is already sure, undefiled, waiting for us in heaven. And what a glory this truth is, that you don't have to redeem yourself. You don't have to self-preserve. Why? Because you're already preserved in Christ. 
Now you can rest in the great truth that Christ has already preserved you. He's already written your name in the book of life. He has already paid the price to redeem you. It really is finished. Like fully, surely. The challenge is for us to actually believe this. But this is the upside down kingdom that we believe in, that we live in, that we're called to live in this way, to trust in faith. And I promise you this, that this upside down kingdom actually works. Not because of me, not because of you, but because the work of Christ works. His work never fails. May we be a people who learn to trust who learn to walk according to his ways, who learn to walk according to God's wisdom, knowing that we are already preserved in Christ, so much so that we can live for the life of the world. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, in your infinite mercy and grace, we ask that you would help us to be a people who walk in your ways in the light of your truth, who trust you, against all odds, who trust you when it doesn't make sense, knowing that your way will always lead to life. Apply this by the power of your spirit. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.